Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. All right, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Charles Conroy, who's my guest here today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. Excited to be in Dallas. Yeah, heck yeah. You just moved here, right? Yeah, a week ago. So From New York. Yep. You were the first person I came to visit. So <laughs> I feel special. So how do you like the sunshine? Have you been inside for the last <laughs> I mean, seven months? The weather here is actually, yeah, getting out and walking around and not being in New York City, which unfortunately is, is going through some rough stuff right now. But the weather here and the people here have been really welcoming and awesome and excited to pick up where I left off. Cool. Heck yeah. Well, let me introduce you and uh, so that the audience knows who we're talking to today. So Charles is a former partner at Complexity Gaming, which is close to my heart as you wore the t-shirt for you today. Love the shirt. So Love the shirt. Uh, thank you, Jason Lake. <laughs> and you are currently a VP at The Switch, which is the world's leader in broadcast transmissions, if I have that right. Correct. Yep. It's been a long, crazy road, but here I am. Boom. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what The Switch does so that everybody understands that. Yeah, so we do uh, live event broadcast. So any event you can think of, we take the video signal from the arena and then send it around the world. So for example, the Super Bowl or the Oscars, we take that feed and distribute it to 160 different countries and a ton of different formats, however they need to receive it. And then the other side of our business is production. So we have remote control rooms in Burbank. We're actually producing the entire PGA tour there this year from the Burbank facility. Obviously with COVID, people don't want to travel. So we're doing all that for them. So we, we produce a ton of TV shows out of there. We have sound stages. Uh, so the transmission and the production arms are, are what we do. And we're, we're really good at something that people don't really think about. <laughs> right. Well, that, I mean, if nobody's thinking about it, that's probably the best business to be in because you don't have a ton of competition, I would think. We certainly have competition, but we're a global company. So a lot of our competition is localized to a country. So fiber providers in like every telco and every major country is technically a competitor, but because we're buying on a global level for events that are big, like the Super Bowl, we kind of work with our competition as well as compete against them, which was an interesting thing to learn when I entered the industry. Yeah. So you um, know, so this is a company that started in traditional sports and broadcasting has now gone into esports. Right? Correct. Yeah. They launched esports uh, about two years ago. So they, they did BlizzCon just sort of through some connections and they went to it and they go, well, wow. and the Overwatch League finals for season one. Okay. And they said, wow, this esports thing is, is really big. We need to get into it. I had a, a, a personal friend that worked at the company and he said, you know, I think my friend knows about the esports stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we had just sold complexity and I was looking for a new opportunity. Actually, it was like a year after we sold complexity. And I'll back up and talk about that later. But I got a phone call and I went to a Mets game with them and they told me how the company works. And I said, yeah, I have no idea what any of that means. And I'm probably the wrong guy to hire. Uh, But they haven't found out yet. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we started with me as a consultant and I went to a few events and kind of brought up this technology to like ESL and the Overwatch guys. They, we had some traction and they said, we want to make this a whole division. So they launched the esports division, hired me to run it. And now I'm really proud to say that we work with the Overwatch League, Call of Duty League, ESL, We Play and Blast. Wow. So we're, we're really big in the space. We're really supportive uh, of this space and we can't wait to grow with it. That's amazing. One thing I love is to see, like I'm part of the Esports Trade Association. So the, you were on a, a panel with us at our last oh, yeah. conference. So thank you for doing that. For yeah, of course. It was a great panel. Really, really interesting people. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the whole conference, and you guys had such tremendous insights, and then we had a bunch of different panels across value 
sponsorship valuation modeling of all things, B2B, localization, building platforms from the ground up. Yeah. Um, what I'm super passionate about is it's it's so important to bring people in with that complementary expertise that gaming and esports doesn't have, but it's important to bring the right people. Absolutely. Right. I always say that, you know, traditional broadcast can learn so much from esports and esports can't be so arrogant to think that they can't learn from traditional broadcast. Right. And I, I think if we learn from each other and we learn what, what each other's good at, we can create a better product. And that's that's what we're trying to do with the switch. And, you know, so far, knock on wood, we're doing pretty well. That's awesome. Sounds like it. So let me know. So, you know, tell me about this journey. So we know where you are now. You mentioned complexity and you were a player. That's how you first got into esports. Is, is that accurate? Yeah. So I started as a Counter-Strike player when I was 16, just online with with my buddies, as many people do. And we went to a couple of local lands. We did OK. And then we heard about this tournament in Dallas called CPL. And this was 2001, 2002. And so we all got in our cars and, and drove down to Dallas, came to CPL. We didn't do well. <laughs> we actually got totally spanked. And then I, I said, this is an industry, though. I mean, there's sponsors here, there's passion, there's teams from, yeah. you know, 14 different countries. This is a thing. So I decided to become a manager of my team and start my own team. Uh, I met a bunch of people at that tournament that were pretty good. And I, I sort of hobbled together. It's like a little giants type of team. And we went back and we did pretty well. And then we got some corporate sponsorship and then we started to do really well and represented the United States in Korea and in France and traveled around the world. And we were sort of always considered the third best team in North America outside of 3D and complexity. We didn't have the budget to compete with those guys. So we were just scrapping together wins wherever we could. But we were, you know, on everyone's radar on an international level. And then DirecTV came around and said, we're going to launch a, a franchise league. And this might blow your mind, but they attach cities to franchises for games. No way. I've never heard of this <laughs> yeah. before. Hold, slow down. Slow right. down. Back up. <laughs> and so this is, you know, 2007. So this is far before anything we're seeing now. They brought in guys that produce uh, Sunday Night Football. They brought in the minds behind NASCAR, and they really did it in a big way. Um, they okay. did it with a lot of money. And while well, this thing was a rocket ship, I mean, the, the draft for the league was at the Playboy Mansion. We all had apartments in LA. I was 19, so that was pretty fun, right? I mean, it was right. like, yeah, I didn't know I'd peak at 19. but <laughs> um, Now we know. Yeah, now we know. Just live, uh, live for those moments. Exactly. But it was insane. Like, we were finally, I, I had never made a dollar in gaming. In fact, I was negative money from going to these tournaments and I was making a very livable salary as a manager of this team. And it was really cool. All my, the players were guaranteed at least 30 grand a year, again, going from $500 a month salaries. So it was just such a game changer. Yeah. I mean, when you're a kid and you get 30 grand, I mean, that seems like a ton yeah. at the time. I remember I, I went from college, I remember I made $12,000 my junior year, 14 my senior year, and then 40 when I you know started yeah. my first job. It's a big jump. I remember when I paid my rent and I had more money left over than my entire check from Starbucks <laughs> <laughs> when I was working. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's fantastic. And these guys, if they did well, could make a hundred grand a year as players. I think, but they almost went too big. So they blew through about $40 million in two seasons. That was my question is like, what happened? This is 2007. Yep. 2007, 2008. I woke up to a message on the website just saying the league was closed, like not a phone call. And then I get an email two yeah. hours later being like, can we have all the general managers on a call? And players are calling me literally in tears being like, what does this mean? I had no answers. I was 21 years old at the time. So wow. that was the youngest manager in the world by about nine years. So we were all in the same place. We finally got answers. It was a terrible way to end things. It, it was it was so well-intentioned. 
and like many things that are well-intentioned was just a complete detriment to the esports industry because after that didn't work people didn't believe in esports for a while they said if news corp can't do it with 40 million dollars this thing's gonna go the way of bowling and just be sort of a fad sure and i think there's two things one is it's it's so dangerous exactly what you said is somebody tries they put all this money into it and it fails and then everybody else sees that it didn't work right but a lot of people don't understand that we as gamers, the esports community, why we're skeptical of brands. And my perspective, it's it's not so much people coming in, it's that we know they're going to leave once they get what they want out of us. Yep. Or if they don't get it, they bail and have no no thought of the consequences here. Like a lot of people's lives were fairly, I don't want to say ruined, but really shaken up. So at that time, one of my best friends still to this day, Jason Lake, had complexity. Yep. Um, he had sold Complexity to DirecTV, bought it back. I think we bought it back for like a dollar. Uh, <laughs> so it was, a, it was a good deal for Lake. And he was like, I want to re- restart Complexity. We'll, we'll re-enter the independent space. So I was going to restart my team. And he's like, look, we can't have three new independent teams come up. <clears throat> There's just not enough dollars out there right now. I was younger. I think I don't want to age Lake here, but significantly younger. And, uh, you know, he had two kids. I still don't have kids. So, But at the time, I was, you know, I was 21 years old. I was finishing college. I could do all the traveling. Right. Uh, and then Jason Bass was a guy that sold gotfrag.com. He was the head of content for the league. He he had the COO role. So we kind of all had our pieces, like being the CEO, Bass doing a lot of the operational stuff, and then me traveling and working with the players and, and developing that side of it. So, you know, we, we grew complexity together, and it was a, a crazy ride coming off of CGS. I literally flew to CES with a pitch book, and we walked out of there with like $70,000 in deals. Wow. And from from nothing, we just cold walked up to boost. So complexity was restarted. Are you, ta- are you talking sponsorships or how? Like, yeah, sponsorship deals. People? Yep. Because, you know, we had a great brand in complexity and we had players that had just been on TV for two years, right? So people knew who they were, they were marketable and we weren't asking for a lot of money for all that. We just needed enough to keep the lights on right. or turn the lights on rather, I guess at that point. You know, the complexity adventure was a crazy ride. We had some incredible teams. We had, yeah, like everything else, ups and downs. And then... Uh, Culminated in the the purchase of the team by the Dallas Cowboys, yeah, which was obviously probably the most incredible moment of arguably any of our lives. I mean, certainly mine. Um, Big time, yeah. Were you, were you in the helicopter at any moment? I I was not. Lake got all the helicopter rides, <laughs> so I I heard about them. They sounded sweet, <laughs> but yeah, just incredible, incredible process and experience. And you know, you're you're three guys negotiating against the Dallas Cowboys. Well, not negotiating with the Dallas Cowboys. But, right. You, you still want to get the best deal, but I, I got to believe it's pretty intimidating walking into a room. W- was Jerry in these rooms or was it his his right hand man? I know the Goffs were, yes. were involved as well. Yeah, the Goff family. Stephen Jones was involved. And I mean, Lake really ha- handled all that. And then we would sort of Lake would be our representative and then come back and we'd sort of all talk about it internally. So it's a crazy ride, but so happy with how that 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 finished so happy for complexity and Jason. I'm a yeah. huge complexity fan. I think they've done the best job of any pro team in gaming integrating with their partner. So yes, you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, I I had a really close look at it because I initiated and helped develop the deal of the GameStop Performance Center, right? Which is the naming rights for the Dallas Cowboys headquarters or the headquarters at Dallas Cowboys headquarters. Which the is Stars awesome, by the way. That is the coolest. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. I love just like every time I go to dinner at the star or something like that, I'll just go walk and look at the sign and like, ah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. no, it's so cool. But I, yeah, I think, you know, Jason talks about 
a lot about esports 1.0, which was what you just described greatly. 2.0, which was then gamer houses, and there's a little bit of budget, but everybody's living together. Right. And now we're at 3.0, where it's you got luxury apartments, you have a training center. Like these guys are sitting next to Zeke and Dak eating yeah. breakfast, and then they're they're going to work and they're training in ways that I, I think the thing I love the most about the GSPC is it shows what goes into being a pro. Oh yeah. So you have like the Big reaction time. time stuff with Mamba Sports Academy in there for, for people who haven't seen it yet. I did the tests and I felt fast and I wasn't fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have I, I you mean, done this? Oh yeah. And I wasn't fast either, but I didn't feel fast. I just felt, you know, I, I slinked over to the Miller Light Lounge and I just had a couple to. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's the perfect. I'm not a young man anymore. I that's guess. the perfect thing is that when I saw the Miller Light Lounge, I was like, oh, this is so genius because Cowboys sponsors, which there's something like 212 different sponsors in Jerry World or I something like it. that. I yeah. believe it. I was like, you have a perfect integration into esports and gaming. And so when I saw the Miller Light Lounge and the can troller, yeah. which I thought was genius, yeah. I was like, oh, this integration. And then Post Malone, who is now part owner of Envy. Right, I saw that. But his dad is an employee of the Cowboys, or was. Yeah, I think he's he's in the marketing side as a, a vice president. Don't quote me on this, but I think he's very high up in the Cowboys organization on the marketing side. Yeah, I wasn't sure of his position, but uh, I knew he worked for the Cowboys. Yeah, I, I think it's a marketing role. Again, I don't want to I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but he's very involved in the Cowboys organization. Yeah, and so I, I remember like early on when they did the, the Cowboys deal, when Complexity did, they were doing, they were playing Call of Duty with Posty. Yep, he came in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Dak obviously has come in. Zeke's come in. They really utilize the Cowboys. Just the integration, and I know I've already said this, but the integration between the Dallas Cowboys and Complexity, I think, is the way to do it. So when companies and teams and sports teams rather look at investing in gaming teams, this is the model. This is how to do it right. Right, and I, I think what... I don't know if people understand this or not, but the people who are close to professional sports, traditional sports, know that every single player is a gamer. Yeah. And so, like, they're taking their consoles with them. You know, the NBA bubble, full of consoles. Yeah. Right? And so I think the the challenge that traditional sports has, and this wasn't even a path we were going on. No, but, but I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's fascinating. So, you know, traditional sports, they typically default into... Whatever my traditional sport is, young people want to play the virtual version of it, right? So NBA, NBA 2K League, FIFA, MLS, right, right. et cetera, NFL Madden. And sometimes you can get lucky. And I think that skews people's opinions because like NASCAR, right? They were doing actual simulators. right? And so people are like, oh, just do the virtual version of traditional sports. And it's like, no, it works there. Yeah. And it works pretty well for FIFA. But the other leagues, like MLB The Show League, was a challenge, right? <laughs> Can we say that? Yeah. I don't. I think the NHL game, challenging once again. They, they have a, so I actually was talking about that game with a, with a sports team the other day, and it's got a huge following in Canada, as you might think. Sure. And the linear viewership on it was a lot larger than I thought. But to your point, I mean, the whole thing about gaming and esports is it, it doesn't have to be like a traditional sport because Call of Duty, for example— that's right. not something you can do in real life. Like, right. You know, some people do it and, and they're really cool. They're a lot cooler than I am. But yeah. <laughs> most yeah. people are not, you know, dropping out of airplanes and going after terrorists. And 
it gives a level of escapism because you can grab a ball and go out to the court and shoot around with your buddies. Yeah, I think the other thing too is it's like children don't want to do what their parents did virtually. They want to play great games. Right. And some great games might mimic traditional sports and many do not. Right. And I think too, the NBA 2K League kind of fell into a trap because I was at GameStop when they were developing it. So I got a a close view at it. NBA 2K is a top three seller every single year. Yeah. It's a great game. Yeah. It's a great game to play. It's not a great game to watch. And so the watchability factor on that makes viewership very, very low where you have this tremendous player base, but you don't have a very large viewership base. And that's where they struggle. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they had a lot going for them before COVID, though. They they had some momentum ramping up because they had great personalities in the NBA 2K League. And they were telling those guys stories. And it was really interesting. I've been to the draft both years. I mean, I was living in New York, right? So it'd be hard not to. It's at the right. Barclays Center. Yeah. And I hope those guys, you know, regain their momentum because they they have a lot of personality in that league. More so yeah. than than other leagues, right? I mean, there's a lot to, to market there and look at, so... Well, and I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm always urging everybody, especially these data analytics companies, like we, we need the demographics of titles. You know, like we 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 talk about esports and traditional sports in such different ways, right? Absolutely. We always say, have you reached the esports enthusiast? It's 500 million people world, or whatever the number is today. Yeah. But we never say, have you reached the sports enthusiast? Yeah, hey, they're sports it's fans. Seven and a half <laughs> billion people. Yeah. And it's, it's you know... Almost directly split male, female, you know, you got to reach the sports enthusiasts because we know based on all this marketing and advertising that a basketball fan is way different than a baseball fan. hundred percent. But we don't yet have all the data. We know it, but we don't have the data to say, hey, Dota 2 and League of Legends on the surface for people who don't, you know, have a trained eye look very similar, different communities. Totally. And I one to your point about NBA 2K, 2K League is it's a trash talking community. And yeah. I love that. Like that's yeah. my favorite thing about esports. It's fun. Is seeing these dudes talk that trash. And I, I really hope that as it matures and as it goes mainstream, that we don't lose that thing where two players are on stage and you're like, yeah, you choked. <laughs> like I, I love that. <laughs> so I think you and I was I was actually talking to someone about this the other day too, is in CS you you kind of see it where the guys are so polished that it's different. You know, when I played CS, we were screaming terrible, terrible things at each other. And uh, we were like Jordan on the court, you know. And now in CS, right. there's a couple guys. I mean, Kerrigan kind of does it. A couple people kind of like stand up and celebrate. They're also farther apart now. But, yeah. uh, you know, Call of Duty League, you still see it pretty hard. Yeah. yeah. The Overwatch guys are very polite, so they don't do it to each other. So it's, each game has its own vibe, but exactly. none of it's like NBA 2K and it's the in-your-face trash talk. Yeah. Well, so going back to when you mm-hmm. were a player— Yep. What were, what's like a memorable moment that you'll never forget? What was, I mean, you, you had, sounds like good times and hard times, but what's one of those like, man, I, I wouldn't give that up. If I could go back, I'd do that exactly how it happened. Man, there's a few of them. In game, our performance at CPL 2005 was big. It was arguably the most competitive tournament of all time for Counter-Strike. There were 256 teams there. We were a very overhyped team, frankly, because I was a very loud person and I was constantly getting the team's name out there. And I said, we're the best team in America. We're the best team in America. And before the tournament, like two, um, six weeks before, one of our guys broke his arm. He fell off a roof and broke his arm when he was like painting. 
which was unfortunate. Um, <laughs> and so we had to practice for the stand-in. We weren't doing as well. He got better like five days before the tournament. I didn't accused from Canada. I couldn't really afford another plane ticket. Like we were on a shoestring budget. So we're like, let's play with him. We don't know how we're going to do. We did well in the boot camp, And uh, there were some announcers that came out and they specifically said we were going to do really poorly and be the biggest disappointment in the tournament. And we rolled through. I mean, we took out complexity. Then we played Nip and Heaton was giving an interview. Heaton's another one of my very close friends. And he was talking about the team he had to play after us in the interview. And they were like, oh, actually, you play JMC next. He's like, yeah, but let's be realistic. And totally discounted us. Throwing shade, yeah. Yeah, we, I I mean, we whooped them really hard. And so we beat everybody except for this, the the team that knocked us out, Lunatic Sakai, beat us twice. But we went from really a very low-seeded team to third in the world. And we did it on a budget that was 120th of our competitors. So that was a really proud moment of of sort of moneyballing the esports system and, and knowing I could do it. And, you know, on three CPLs in a row, we we're the top placing North American team with three different lineups. So they'd keep losing my talent because I couldn't afford to keep them. So that was awesome. And then honestly, I know I already mentioned it. I'm not saying it from an Im- immature perspective, but being at the Playboy Mansion, knowing that like you're getting a paycheck for esports, like that's when we first got our jobs. We moved into our apartments in LA. We got a paycheck bigger than anything I'd ever seen before. And I was doing it for gaming. Like it, it all made sense and it was all Unreal. worth it. Yeah, I was like, this is a real thing. This is my career. I'm doing something that some people in their lives will never get to do. I'm about to start filming a TV show at my apartment paid for in Los Angeles. And I'm a junior in college. Wow. You know, so it was, that was unreal. So those are two very memorable moments. You talk about, you know, you guys were kind of money balling it. I know you've talked before when we were discussing previously about you know, you have these teams that they can just finance a winning team. Right. Right. So talk a little bit about that. And is, was that the same back then as it is now? Or has that, is money as influential in recruiting a team? I mean, look, big pocketbooks are always going to help win championships. I don't think there's any doubt about that in, in any, anything. The in Yankees. Life. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. As a huge Yankees fan, I just think we're a talented team with a lot of heart, but. Uh, what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so back then. There were two Counter-Strike scenes that we paid attention to. It was the local Dallas scene and the Southern California scene, and on some degree, the New York scene. And those were pretty much where all the sickest players were produced because you could only view live footage at LAN tournaments. Their local LAN scenes were the best, and I would basically cherry-pick from those three scenes. Is If a kid went and went nuts at a Dallas LAN, I'd grab him. Or okay. if a yeah. kid went nuts in Southern California. Now in gaming, you have so much more game film and footage and ways to track players and get to know their personalities. Before it was, you went to a LAN, you either did well or you didn't. Now you have Twitch and you, I mean, you have just so many ways, so much data. Yeah, AI, I, you know, I get all these, you know, up and coming startups hitting me up like, John, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And AI is a big one where it's tracking how players are playing. Right. right? And we clearly didn't have that 14 years ago. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, just the amount of data and access you have to players now and how good they are, you have so much more information. Right. I think the GameStop Performance Center with complexity is, is a perfect example of that too. I mean, it was mind-blowing going through their their blueprints before we did the deal, and they're like, yeah, this is where we study game film. Yeah. Just like you see across the street at the Star with the Cowboys players. And here's how we... like. Like they've got this room where you can change the lights, the height of the desk, the sound to. You can pump in crowd sound too. Yeah, I, that room's awesome. 
I mean, it's incredible. There's two of them because you have one on both sides. Yeah, I, again, I know it sounds like I'm you know talking about complexity all the time, but I really think they've done the best job of of putting together a facility and um, an integration with the team. And the Cowboys have been such an amazing partner for them. So really proud to have been part of that deal and really excited for what Jason's doing over there. Yeah. So w- why do you think more <laughs> traditional teams? Because th- I mean. You have these owners in traditional sports. Robert Kraft is one of them where he's own, he owns one of everything. Right. Right. He's got a soccer team. He's got baseball. Does he have baseball? Is he part of the Red Sox? I don't believe so, but I could also be wrong on that. Okay. Well, the the theme around him is he's he's got it all. And so he has an Overwatch team. Right. Right. And I've heard that the culture of the Overwatch team is not as fun. Yeah. I mean, they, some other teams. they hired Hawk, who's... Also an old buddy of mine to, to, to run it. And he's a, he's a great guy as a character. Obviously one of the best StarCraft II players ever. Yeah. But there's the Robert Kraft way of entering it, in, in my opinion, and I wasn't involved with that at all, was to check a box and say we have esports covered. And Got it. You can certainly do that. But if you're going to drop $30 million, I would, I would think you would want to have more control over what that product looks like. And how that product feels and to make sure it resembles the rest of your brand. And the Cowboys organization is very good at that. Yeah. Right down to the rebrand of the Complexity logo. So right. when we were selling Complexity, we got multiple offers. It's not like we only had one. Sure. And we analyzed a lot of different scenarios. And and frankly, there was there were higher money offers on the table that we turned sure. down. And yeah. the Cowboys vision for the team, the integration, making sure we're leaving Jason and Complexity in a good place. And Look, I'll be honest, selling the team at 30, having the Cowboys on my resume versus having just some random investment group, way different. So that sales changed my life and the trajectory of my career in a, in a very major way. Well, and it makes me think about Shark Tank, which is one of my favorite shows. And, a lot, you know, they argue, like, the value of the shark. Right. Right. And Gary Jones is a pretty big shark. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like, okay, you might, I might be getting less today with this deal, but 20 years from now, Where's my brand? Where are my opportunities too? And like, like, what do I get to do? I mean, the fact that you, one, one of my good friends, his, his wife runs the cowboy fit gym yeah. at the star. Yeah. And this is awesome. Yeah. And so she was telling me one day, she said, one of the best things is just driving up to the most beautiful facility I've ever seen. Yeah. And it makes me smile because I get the opportunity to work here. It's amazing. Like the star is, is incredible. And I remember when Lake took me like on the behind the scenes tour we're in like the locker rooms and stuff. It's just every everything that they've done there is top notch. Yeah. You know, they didn't skimp on anything. And it's an incredible place. Yeah. So you've talked about where you came from. We've talked a little bit about where you are now. What was one or two like forks in the road that were pivotal that you look back and you think these moments really shaped or directed where I am today? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I can kind of break it out into three segments. One would be in my early career when I, you know, was literally running a team in high school and we were winning and I kept losing my players. And after that 05 event, I ended up losing that entire roster. There are four out of five players in that roster to an organization with more money. After I'd, I'd, I'd spent, you know, months and months putting it together, watching demos for six hours. And, and it would have been really easy to hang it up. At that point, I was in my freshman year of college and I said, look, I gave this gaming thing a try. It's not going to go anywhere and time to focus on school. I didn't. And I'm really glad I didn't because then the championship gaming series came around and uh, I got the call from Craig Levine 
that who was running running the league. Hey, do you want to manage Dallas? And there was a lot of conversation because I was a kid in college. If really I should be controlling like a seven hundred thousand dollar budget for Directv, I just finished my sophomore year of college, and it was a big thing for for Craig and and actually Jason pushed really hard to have me hired as well, and Matt Boost made me realize that gaming is going to be huge. Not that I didn't already realize it, but I never made a, a dime in gaming. I was, I was negative money. Yeah, it's a big difference when you're making money versus right. you're just doing it for fun and you're getting a little support or you're you're winning, but you're not really paying bills. Yeah, and, and not that I ever required the support of my family, who was, who was very supportive, but when they finally got it and my friends got it and like everyone around me got it and I got actual support that just wanted me to keep cruising. Um, yeah, I, I was actually curious about that with your, your parents. I was thinking, you know, this, well, let's see, what year was it when you were, what, 15, 16? I was 16 years old when I went to my first tournament. And so my dad gave me enough money for a hotel room. Okay. And I told him that, <laughs> kind of lied to him. I was like, everyone gets their own room. The whole team stayed in that room. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So did everybody split it and you had money to save or, or was, did nobody else I, have money for the room and you're like, everyone kind of like, yeah, everyone had money for like food. Like they picked up different things, but we, I mean, we were okay. like 17 years old. We didn't really have, we didn't really have money. Like we all had summer jobs yeah. and stuff. So, um, you're, so your dad at least supported it enough to let you like gave you at least for that one. Yeah situation and then supporting you to a point yeah and he you know this is is so my my parents were very divided on it and and a great story is i i was a senior in high school and my dad put his name on the lease for the first gaming house that we had we were the second team in north american history to have a gaming house oh wow and it was five was it it was in westchester pennsylvania okay that's where bam margera lives you know yes. who Ben Margera is? I do the, know who Ben yeah, Margera is. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly he, where he lives. Yeah. Yeah. So we got this gaming house. He put his name on it. And my mom goes, you're nuts. You're giving your eight. I didn't live there because I was still in high school back in Connecticut. And he wasn't paying for it, but he put his name on the lease to accept responsibility. Basically like paying for it because someone's, if the if the mortgage goes. Yeah. It's just. It's it, responsible. Or if like someone gets hurt. In the house, like there's just like a lot of lot of liability they took on at that point, and my mom was going nuts. She's like, "What are you doing?" What age were the kids living or the people living in the house? Between eighteen and twenty two. Okay, so I was a lot to be concerned about from a <laughs> just like a lot could go wrong, right? And then a lot did go wrong. They got evicted three and a half months in. We had no manager there. One of the players fell asleep with the oven on and a pizza box on it. There was a fire. They put it out with a fire extinguisher, but like it just was a disaster. And most of that team had to get cut for various, various reasons. And it was a huge mistake. I, I really messed up, but you know, <laughs> it was a nice sign of support by him. And he didn't give up on me at that point, but he, he did say, you know, if, whatever you do going forward, like you got to do it. There's, you know, yeah. I, you're 18 now. You can legally accept responsibility for things. And, and I did. And we turned JMC into an LLC, like a real company, because before we were just kids, like flying by the seat of our pants. Sure. I formed an LLC, and he kind of guided me on on how to run it and what to do. And then it was ESWC in France. My parents, my my cousin at the time was living there, and they were going to visit her. Yeah. Uh, she was in school there, and I said, you know, there's a gaming tournament at the same time. Will you come see it? And yeah. they came to the Esports World Cup, where we had just a phenomenal weekend as a team. 
and there were cheerleaders and there was pyrotechnics and it was like a WWE event. And I remember my mom finally being like, this is amazing. You're onto something here and getting her support meant the world to me. My dad just kept talking about the cheerleaders and telling all his friends (laughs) there's cheerleaders. It's a thing. There's cheerleaders. Can you believe it? And so he was in. Um, but there's not cheerleaders anymore. I know. So what he, happened? Was is this a? You would yeah. I, I guess we're moving in the wrong direction. <laughs> uh, I was the esports World Cup was a very French production. Like the after party, they rented out Disney Paris. Had David Guetta spin live while you were going on the rides. Of course, pumping it through the park like the most insane. You're like, what is going on? This is awesome. <laughs> and then Championship Gaming Series came around, and yeah, they came to a, a TV set in LA, and you know they got to meet. Like my my dad met Lincoln Park, who came to one of the one of the games today. We're looking at investing in the league, and he goes, "I met this local band." This <laughs> like, local band in in Paris? No, this was in Championship Gaming Series in L.A. Okay, so they to to promote the league, they had a bunch of celebrities roll through. Okay, and so Kim Kardashian had just started filming the Kardashians, and Reggie Bush was her then boyfriend. And yep, so when he was at USC. Yeah, yeah, and he might have just gotten drafted. Okay, but it was right around then. And so I don't know if 07 or 08, he'd still be in college or if he would have gotten drafted at that point. I can't quite remember, but I just remember him not getting touched every game that he <laughs> played. It was, I, I grew up next to Fresno. And so Fresno State is the big university there. And there's this Fresno State USC game where I think it was the one where he, he ran for like 500 plus all purpose yards. <laughs> And it's just like, so belligerent. like if if they were playing flag football, he still wouldn't have been tackled. It was just he, I mean, incredible. he had he had his college career is insane. But yeah. Anyway, I digress. So we, you know, I I meet them and we meet like Brody Jenner and he's really cool. And you know, I meet Kim and and Reggie and you know Reggie's like kind of explained this to me and and Kim's like I don't get it. People get paid to play video games. Like who watches this? And I I literally said to her, I didn't mean this in the way it came out, but I go, well, what do you get paid to do? <laughs> People watch that. You just kind of like hang out with your sisters, right? And I didn't yeah. mean it in a mean way. Yeah. But what I was, was her response to that? She just kind of walked away. Yeah. So I think uh, people are still trying to figure that out. But <laughs> that I mean, just but you know, experiences like that are happening, and I'm like pinching myself because I was, you know, four years prior, a kid that was in a hotel room with six other kids, just trying to win a video game tournament. Yeah. Well, I think what's amazing about that is in the U.S. The last four or five years, esports has really blown up. And I always say it's because traditional sports and non-endemic brands said, what are all the kids doing who we want to market to? Right. They're not watching TV. They're not watching traditional sports. They're all playing video games. And so esports makes video games sponsorable because you have the traditional assets. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Pepsi looks at esports like, oh, I've got teams, leagues, content, tournaments, et cetera. I can sponsor these things. I recognize them. But I think it's probably surprising for a lot of people watching and listening to hear that this was 13 years ago that you're describing right. in the U.S. Right. And you're having you're making a good amount of money. You're having these crazy experiences. Where was everybody else at that point? Like, yeah. I, I, so I think the fall of the CGS really hurt U.S. esports because it took a while to get back on its feet, and it wasn't until Twitch came out and these metrics were very measurable that pro sports teams took notice. Okay. And then there was a what I like to call the dark ages of esports. I think Lake would probably call this esports 2.5. Okay. But where we were, everyone was recovering from CGS. Everyone had given up their sponsors to go into CGS. We were trying to pick up the pieces. The only team that didn't 
going to CGS was EG, Evil Geniuses. Yeah. And that's frankly because Alex Garfield didn't get the look. And so he very intelligently went around and picked up all the independent team sponsors and built EG into this massive powerhouse. But they were very much a third tier team back in the day. Interesting. And so then, you know, we all came back into gaming and EG was just Goliath. And we had to figure out a way to compete. And once again, moneyball it because we were the low men on the totem pole again. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a long ride and it wasn't always easy, but it was great doing with partners and friends. And we had our eye on the prize. And now it, the success of esports is so obvious, right? Right. If you talk to anyone, they're like, well, of course this is going to be huge. Well, people didn't say that 13 years ago. People literally thought you were crazy. And, and so now just seeing it be so accepted is great. And I still think, and you talk about this all the time, brands need to be careful about how they enter. They need to come yes. in organically and they need to give gamers what they want. Yep. Yeah, I always say, and my, my example comes from skateboarding, actually. And, you know, people who know me know my, my first passion is skateboarding. And Nike is a great example of this. So Nike is two things in skateboarding. They're public enemy, number one, but they're also market share, number one. And a lot of people don't realize it took Nike three different times to enter the skateboarding space. Wow. The first two times they failed spectacularly, spectacularly I'm having trouble with that word right now. <laughs> but the third time they went with a completely different strategy. And so people who see Nike now, they see, oh, you sponsor Nigel Houston, who's won more tournaments, more money than anybody else in skateboarding history. Sponsor Paul Rodriguez, Shane O'Neill, these other guys. But back then, their strategy was very different. They just sponsored guys who were super, super core. And so they weren't the Eric Costins or the Tony Hawks of the world. And the strategy behind that was, if I sponsor guys who are beyond the eyes of reproach, you know, in the industry, we get a chance. Right. And they're sponsoring guys like Richard Mulder, who you've probably never heard of. I have not. <laughs> Sorry. And people go to Richard Mulder and they're like, dude, why are you messing with Nike? It's like, or Chet Childress is even a more core example. And, you know, kind of a pretty gnarly dude you'd never think would be wearing Nikes. Yeah. People ask me that question is like, man, you can hate on them, but they enabled me to make money doing what I love. Totally. Fly me all around the world and they put me in five-star hotels. Do so you hate on them, but they're cool with me. Right. And so they kind of built on this strategy. And even now, if you go to the Nike SB Instagram, it's all super core. Like... Nigel Houston just won an X Games gold medal last week. Wow. And they didn't even post about it. And he has two signature shoes for them because he's not core. So the moment that was like really the turning point for Nike and skateboarding, if you go to any skate park, more kids are wearing Nike than anywhere else, is to give you some context, skateboarding is all about street skating. It's not about parks. It's not about contests. It's about us filming in the streets, skating what's not meant to be skated. And making those killer videos. And exactly. I mean, I've seen those, obviously. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's a courthouse in West LA. It, it, skateboarders call it the Santa Monica Courthouse, but it's officially the West LA Courthouse. It was in all the, the videos back in the 90s. It was a favorite place to, like, people would fly from all over the world to come skate this place. Well, naturally, it got kind of destroyed as the act of skateboarding. And, you know, it became illegal to skate there. Nike, and this was, maybe it was like 10, 11 years ago now, but they worked with the city of Los Angeles to legalize skateboarding there. And they refurbished the whole thing. They put metal ledges on all of the ledges. 
and they repaint it. They do June 21st is go skateboarding day. Okay. And so every go skateboarding day, they do an event with the whole team and everything. And so what's amazing about that and what's like something people can take to apply to any core subculture, whether it's gaming or skateboarding or whatever is Nike gave skateboarding what skateboarders couldn't get for themselves. Totally. And even to go a little deeper, why do skateboarders hate Nike? Because it's a big corporate jock company. Yeah. And so they use their evil powers for good to give the community something that they could not attain for themselves. I love that. I love that example. That's a pretty grand example, but if you can find those things that gamers want to do, experiences, right? We know young people value experiences over owning products. And so, I mean, with the GameStop Performance Center, one of the reasons why I wanted to do that deal was just seeing the blueprints, seeing what they were going to build there and saying, oh my gosh, little Johnny can go behind the scenes and train with a pro. Yeah. Play next to a pro. They set up something really, really cool there. Yeah. And so it just provides all these opportunities for experiences. And so you're exactly right. Like, you know, you find what gamers want to do and you give them that. It's pretty simple, but it, it requires some humility and it requires a community first approach, which a lot of CMOs and CEOs, it, it's hard for them to look past their own KPIs and see what the community actually wants. And to your point, I mean, I think Intel's done an incredible job of doing that, right? Intel's been around since the CPL. Yep. Intel sponsored 3D back in the day. You know, and then they built something great with ESL, with the IAM series, and they've they've taken this corporate giant status. But I, you know, I don't think anyone in the gaming industry dislikes Intel. Everyone loves their products, but yeah, at the same time, Intel's right. really done cool stuff with the the cash and the power that they have to give gamers truly unique tournament experiences. Yeah, I think too. I I shared this on LinkedIn today, actually, a little video of a, a case study with Turtle Wax. And shout out to Dan Ciccone, who he's kind of the architect behind this with Optic and Hector. But one thing that's difficult to figure out for some companies, you you talk about Intel, but they're endemic to the gaming experience, right? right? You can create all these products that make gaming better, faster, whatever. Something like Turtle Wax, it's like, well, what was their activation? Did they sponsor Forza or Rocket League? And it's like, no, in fact, they sponsored a Call of Duty team. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Right. And so what Turtle Wax did, which is genius, is they found an organic way to integrate into a non-gaming behavior of gamers. So if you think about, and they did it through the influencers, so it's natural how the influencers live their lives outside of gaming. Do they make like surf wax or what did they? Well, so what they did is you think about three guys who were with Optic at the time. This is 2016. Prim6 drives a Porsche. Hector had a G-Wagon. And Flame Sword had this super cool motorcycle. I don't know a lot about motorcycles, so I can't speak to the <laughs> yeah, specifications. Cool, but... Looks cool to me. Yeah. They created a bunch of content around these guys taking care of their cars. Oh, wow. Yeah, and if you think about every 16-year-old gamer, how do they view their first car, their Honda Civic? Yeah, are you kidding me? The thing is... A luxury vehicle. Yeah. Right? So they did all this content, and like Hector has a great Dane, Henry, you know? So he's doing like just real natural content about keeping his dope car clean when his huge dog gets in it. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the other thing that, which was unique experience in person at MLG events. So they wrapped 
Crim Six's Porsche in a custom skin. And so he, he's got his signature controller with scuff. Yep. And it's like this motherboard sort of a pattern. So he wrapped his Porsche in that and they showcased it at all the CWL events. That's awesome. So people got to in person, like be with the Turtle Wax Porsche. The result of that was higher ROI than any other sponsorship in like 20 years of the company. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's cool. That's what awesome. I love about that is like, I think there's a lot of, well, maybe not a lot. There's a handful of cool activations and sponsorships we see. Yeah. But the big question mark with investors and sponsors is ROI. Of course. And so I, which. It's not always trackable though in esports, And we face that problem right now is. Big time. How do we, we prove that the, well, first off, people are investing in futures, right? Yes. Everyone asks me, is an esports team worth $30 million? And I always tell them, not if you're trying to get that back in three to five years, because that's just right. not how it works. But if you could, and I've used this example before, so for, for those that have seen another interview, sorry, but I think it's a great example. Yeah. You could buy the Clippers for $50 million bucks 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You do it. You right. Know, everyone takes that deal. Absolutely. And, and that's what these guys are doing now. Over $2 billion now? Yeah. Well, like that's that. what Bomber paid, Steve right? Bomber, yeah. yeah. And I think you take that deal every time. And it's the same thing with sponsorships. Like you're reaching an audience that is a going to be loyal to you for life, right? Yes. The, the gaming audience that you're getting now, if they brush with Crest now, they'll probably brush with Crest for the rest of their life. Right. Right. So you're getting an incredibly loyal audience. You just have to approach them correctly. And your standard trackable ROI measurements are not always going to be completely evident in gaming. You have to get right. a little creative with how you track it and realize that some of it might just be brand exposure that'll pay off down the line. Yeah, I always tell people, I mean, because you have to set these expectations with brands before sponsorship, right? I mean, expectations just in life are everything, right? And so, you know, I would always talk to partners at GameStop and and I'd say, well, it's, you know, it's positive sentiment, it's affinity, and it's loyalty. And those things are softer, but believe me, you get those things, you're going to have sales. Yeah. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It's a big challenge, but I love that turtle wax example because it's like, awesome. you know, people, you can point to that and say, these are guys who did it and it resulted in the KPIs for the brand. So it's possible. Yeah, no, it, it, it totally is. I just think there's a lot of brands that, you know, brands reach out to me all the time as I'm sure they reach out to you and they're like, how can I, if I put in a million dollars, how do I guarantee that I'll get $3 million back and how do I track that? And you're like, all right, you're, you're, you're approaching this the wrong way. Yeah. Big time. You need to come in more holistically you need to to build goodwill, frankly. Yep. Everyone knows the demographics of how much disposable income an esports player has, right? I mean, they're high. They're much higher than an NBA fan. Right. Actually, a great story is Paul Brewer, he's a very close friend of mine, was giving a speech at NAB okay. about ESL. He just left ESL last week, but he was a head of partnerships. Yeah. And he was talking about how Mercedes sponsors ESL. And someone raised their hand and made some really snarky comment about well, gamers aren't going to be able to afford Mercedes. And he's like, well, actually the entry level Mercedes is 40 grand and gamers have a lot more disposable income than NBA fans and they can afford cars. Anyway, you can go roof your favorite NBA team, basically. To this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but the point is these guys have the money, right. To, to purchase luxury products or just purchase any product. Uh, right. But they, they're also smart enough to not have marketing shoved down their throat in a non-organic way. And it'll turn them off just like it will in the skateboarding community. Big time. And I think the biggest difference between skateboarders and gamers and Olympics, the Olympics is the litmus test for this, is that gamers have a desire to go mainstream. And so skateboarding is going to be in the Olympics the next time they have the Olympics. It was supposed to be in the 
2020 Tokyo Olympics, but mm-hmm. whenever they're doing that next year, it'll be in the Olympics. You ask any core skateboarder about what they think of skateboarding in the Olympics, they'll make fun of it. Yeah. There's going to be some sort of comment about the jerseys they have to wear, the uniforms. Skateboarders don't consider skateboarding a sport. We consider it more of an art form because it's about style. It's how you express yourself sort of a thing. It's, it's not inherently competitive. But ask any core gamer, should esports be in the Olympics? And that's a loaded question because it's like, which title, et cetera, right? Yeah. But just that simple question of like, should esports be in the Olympics? They will argue with you to the cows come home. Yes, absolutely. It is a sport for this, that, and the other reason. And so it's a lot easier to reach that group, even though they're, I call it a healthy skepticism because it, it keeps the space pure. Right. In skateboarding, our space is extremely pure, but there's no growth because we won't let anybody in. So that's an esports problem I've talked about before. Is and I've said this. I'm like, guys, it's it's good to be picky, but you can't be gatekeepers of the culture so much that it won't grow. Like you need to let people in. You need to support them. I think gamers are very good at doing that. If they see a brand genuinely supporting the growth of esports, they'll buy it. You know, they'll they'll jump in on it. They'll right. at least give it a shot. Lastly, to your point, is esports a sport? People ask me about that all the time. And frankly, my answer, and I'll go on record saying this, I don't know. It doesn't have to be. Right. It, it's its own, it could be its own thing. You can consider it a sport. Either way, it's huge. Either way, the numbers are there. It's a very real thing. It's a rocket ship in its growth. So call right. it whatever you want. Call it a sport. Call it not a sport. It doesn't matter. The point is esports is, <laughs> is the biggest form of competitive entertainment out there. Right. And I get that question a lot too. And my answer is always, it it depends on what your definition of sport is. Yes, it requires skill. Uh, Yes, there's, you know, it requires competition to declare a winner. If by sport you, you know, you need physical exertion in there, maybe not. Right. But it's, it doesn't matter how you categorize it. It's a thing. It's a movement. It's entertainment. And I think actually the name esports is kind of unfortunate because number one, it's a weird word. Like, <laughs> what'd you say? Right. And you're kind of inventing a word there, right? And now people are familiar with it, but a few years back, like, I think you pronounced something wrong. What was that? Yeah. And then it immediately. Is there, be- is there a hard T in there? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like, and then initially or immediately you're in a, you're in a debate of whether it's a sport or not because the word sport is in it. Yeah, and you're losing context of the whole, you know, the, you can just point out viewership metrics and, and the amount of money it makes. And I mean, there's so many things you can point to and people are like, but is it a sport? And you're like, man, this is not where this conversation needs to be right now. It's not productive. Yeah. I like the term competitive gaming. Yep. Because I think that it's gaming and it's the competitive version of it. Because then people don't understand also non-competitive gaming, which is this much bigger totally. world out there. And it's just... I, I tell every brand this, and I think there's a few that can figure it, this out. If you can figure out integration into the gaming world beyond esports, you're going to have your checks written for you. Because esports is huge and it's compelling and it's vibrant and it's growing, but it's so much smaller. It's like 6% of like the whole gaming world, which is film and television put together. Right. Inside of gaming. Yeah. So. It's an interesting thing, but it's like, how do you sponsor Red Dead 2 outside of the game release? Yeah, I mean, there's brand integration within the game, I guess. You know, you right. I mean, what if you're Aria, the, the like the, the the boot company or what? Like, what yeah, are you going to like? It's 
like, it's complicated. It's maybe easier like racing. What games. if your game feel like you, you like go and you pick up a like. Yeah, you're you're not going to be game for. It's not going to work. In that the was a very tough example though, because you're choosing like a wild, <laughs> wild west game. I mean, but if we start with yeah. like NBA 2K, actually, great example going back to that. But if you're in like career mode, you can buy clothes for your guy, and and you can buy all the right. stuff from real brands. Right. So they do a great job with real life brand integration. But I, I like to use those hard ones because like th- like Monster Hunter, right? I mean, yeah. like again, very hard. <laughs> exactly. Like unless you're. I don't know, a sword company? Or Jeep, right? Okay. Yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll figure <laughs> it out. Well, let me let me ask you this as as we get close to the end here. For sure. You know, we're talking a lot about where esports has been and how it's grown. What is something that you see as the future, whether it's in your industry of broadcasting, whether it's esports, what is something that we need to keep our eye out for that's coming? I'll I'll scream this from the rooftops and it's a very specific answer to that question is mobile gaming. People that don't take mobile esports seriously, I don't, I don't understand where they're coming from. And I get being a purist and kind of to your skateboarding example, my Counter Strike buddies are like, dude, that's not, that's not esports. Well, it is, right? right? It's, it's, it's competitive gaming, and everyone has a phone on them. And there are so many markets in the world where a three thousand dollar gaming rig is the equivalent of like nine months' rent or a year's rent. You have gigantic gaming markets like India and Brazil where. High-end gamers are just not a, a thing that people have in their homes. Um, right. I mean, not to generalize, but in a broad sense, where everyone has a phone. And beyond that, people that don't think that they're gamers because they're playing like words with friends, are they are gamers, right? So you're getting yeah. uh, a, a great 50-50 demo, um, about 50-50. I, I don't want to misquote that, but... Yeah, you're really close. A lot closer than PC and console. Totally. Yeah. So you're, you're getting a more inclusive community, you know, you're having access to, to the game at all times and you're getting markets that can't afford to participate on a console or PC level. So mobile gaming will continue to blow up. It's already blown up. There was a team, you might know the answer to this. I, I believe they're Brazilian, the first billion dollar valuation that's about to come out. And their is mobile it, gaming team. Is it MIBR or is it somebody else? It is an MIBR. Those okay. guys actually all used to play for me, which was interesting on complexity. Okay. We had a Brazilian lineup for two years. I uh, love sick. those guys. Yeah. And I'm, I'm blanking on the name. And obviously, it happens in an interview, and I'll go back and, and reference it. But they're a mobile gaming team out of Brazil, and they're they're nearing a billion-dollar valuation. And mobile gaming, again, it's a thing. It's, it's the future in many ways. It's not going to replace console, and it's not going to replace PC, but they will all coexist. It's where the growth is going to come from, Absolutely. right? And from mainstream, lower income, talk about internationally. When I was at Sacramento State getting my marketing degree— I had a project where I was consulting Intel, just like, not really, but just for the project. And I had to choose a country and I chose India. And so I had another professor who was from India. And so I I scheduled some time with him and I I went to him and I said, hey, this is my project I'm doing for my other marketing class. What can you tell me about the Indian population, consumer behavior, et cetera? And he said, whatever you do, and this was 10, 11 years ago, he said, whatever you do, focus on mobile. Right. And, you know, here that we was are. 10 or 11 years ago, to your point. Right. I mean, cell phones have advanced. Do I mean, you remember your cell phone 10 years ago to your cell phone now? You have a computer in your pocket now. Yeah, it's it's. You incredible. have a gaming PC in your pocket for all intents and purposes, right? You're playing PUBG, you're playing Fortnite. They have mobile experiences that are that are pretty darn good, you know? Right. Now, do you, do you see, I know PUBG is really big on mobile. I know teams have Fortnite players who play mobile Fortnite. Is do you have a title in mind that like is like this is going to blow up 
on mobile? I, I or just not think that specific. As mobile games get more more refined and they start having like leagues for them, yeah, it'll it'll get bigger. But I heard a stat yesterday that PUBG Mobile is the fourth most watched esport in the world because wow. of the China and Asia viewership. Yep, uh, and the Indian viewership. And look at those populations of China and India. They're, the most right. watched esport there is PUBG Mobile because they all play on mobile phones. You can't ignore those demographics. Right, and when you're you have these brands are looking overseas to to reach massive amounts of people, and I think it's really in, interesting. You know, China's locked down in some ways as far as what you can do there, and India is not. And so yeah. I think it's interesting. Obviously, very different demographics, very different cultures. But when you're looking for a numbers standpoint, you say, okay, if I can sponsor mobile, I can integrate into mobile in some way, especially if it's kind of a newer world to move into. So you have some first mover advantages where console esports, PC esports is getting filled up by sponsors all the time. Right. It's a really compelling proposition. And Fnatic's done a great job of this. Fnatic has a PUBG mobile team out of India. They're wildly popular. They their cell phone, their smartphone sponsor is now releasing in all publicly marketed phones a Fnatic mode that will help you game better. It'll up your somehow up your connectivity, turn off all the other apps. So like all the speed of your phone is directed towards the game. Um, That's incredible. It's incredible. And like talk about cool brand integrations. You know, their yeah. cell phone sponsor literally has a fanatic mode, not a gaming mode. And I hear stories like that. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. And I don't know where that idea came from, but it sounds like the type of idea that would come from a team. You know, I, I think that's something that is overlooked often. And I know this with Optic and it was Lipton Brisk Ice Tea. They had a, a huge sponsorship. What they did is they the Lipton people went to Optic. They said, do whatever you want to do. We know you're kings of content. You yeah. Know, do whatever. And sure they had this, they this, it was these epic episodes called Smooth Competition. And it was actually the esports pros and influencers playing physical, like doing physical challenges. Like they would go to a high school and see who, who could hit the crossbar on a soccer goal. Okay. And then it's like chugs my tea. Yeah, and it was just like naturally integrated, you know, like like there's like some branding and like what they were when they needed a beverage, it was iced tea or they they had this big house in Chicago and they had this like big obstacle course that they put in their backyard and they're just seeing who can go through it the fastest. Which gamers love to compete even outside of the game. Like the guys that compete at that level, just like Jordan loves to play golf for what a hundred grand a hole. It was like rumored what he plays. Exactly. Like, you know, if you're a competitor, you're a competitor. Right. And talented people are you know, typically talented at more than one thing. So it's like, 100%. okay, like, yeah, you're great in the sticks. Like, are you great at pool? At, at an obstacle course. Or an obstacle <laughs> course or something like that. Yeah. I think that's well, awesome. I mean, we could go on forever and ever and ever, but I will not keep you for the rest of the day. But I want to thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, man. It's uh, been a pleasure. Again, excited to be in the same city. We'll have to hang out more. Heck yeah. Yeah, I'm going to see you tomorrow. Yeah, so. actually probably seeing too much of you. We should probably hang out less. <laughs> well, we'll try to sparse it out. You know, we'll try to do it every month or two. Well, thank you and congrats on everything you're doing. It's really cool. I obviously have been following you for a while and you have some great insight. And, you know, I rarely, if ever, disagree with you. So keep it up, man. Keep crushing it. And I'm excited to see where the entire space goes and excited to be at the Switch trying to help lead that charge. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Once again, this is... Charles Conroy joining the DLC Drop podcast, dropping knowledge, insights, and hysterical stories. So, thank you again. Thanks, buddy.
Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futurai Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.